Well, one of the most awkward experiences of my whole life was at church. And it was when I was 13 years old. You see, it was Youth Sunday, which, you know, the youth group has to lead the service. The youth pastor does the sermon, all those kind of things. And my task was to do the prayer, the congregational prayer, before the offering. The youth pastor slipped me a note right before the prayer and told me that someone had died in the church and that we should pray for their family. So, I, because I follow orders the best I can, prayed for this individual that had died. But I somehow had missed what the note actually said, that it was the gentleman's mother that had died, not him who had died. And it was actually one of the leaders in our church. So here I am praying for this family and this gentleman that had died, who was actually sitting in the church. I was interrupted in the middle of the prayer, very awkward. He's not dead, it's his mom. Yes. Well, today we're going to be in another awkward situation in the church. You see, there was this church that promised to give money. And they haven't given it yet. And in fact, one of the leaders that thought they were going to give the money and had, had told other churches in the northern part of Greece that they were going to give money, and they gave money knowing that this church was going to give money. But they have not given. And this has led to a very awkward encounter. How is Paul in this passage going to navigate this? And then that leads us in flashbacks to 13 years old to the awkwardness of this morning. This is right the biggest day for us as the church, right? This is our Super Bowl. It's Easter. Some of you are visitors this morning. There are flowers. There's the choir. Some of us have worn ties today. It's a miracle that I'm wearing one. Right? We're all dressed up for the Super Bowl. Right? Easter. And the passage that we have landed on, because we just kind of go through a book, is on giving. To all you visitors that are here. I just want to tell you, this is not some big plan, right? That we're not in some capital campaign. The elders didn't say we're behind on the budget. I need to talk about giving. This is just where we have landed, the awkwardness of that on Easter when we have visitors. Well, instead of avoiding the awkwardness, we're going to see that Paul presses in on the issue of generosity. And we're going to do the same this morning. We're not going to avoid this message. In fact, we're going to see how Easter is a catalyst for it. If you're going to hear anything today, this is the point. I'll give it here at the beginning, in the middle, at the end, you'll hear it throughout. But here is the point. Radical and cheerful generosity is a sign of living in the power of the resurrection. Radical and cheerful generosity is a sign of living in the power of the resurrection.
Let's look at God's word, shall we? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. It's printed in your worship guide. Please pay attention as we read God's word this morning. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you might be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may be abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, if just joining us, welcome as we are going through this epistle of 2 Corinthians, this letter that Paul is writing to a church he planted, that he started, a church in southern Greece made up of non-Jews, pagans, Gentiles. I'm not using pagan in a pejorative way. That's just what they worshipped, the gods of Rome. They were pagans. This is a very prosperous city. And it was growing and growing. It became the second most prosperous city next to Rome in the Roman Empire. And here's what had happened. Paul had come into this city and he had talked about the gospel. He had spread the gospel. This message that we celebrate 2,000 years later. This message about a Jewish carpenter from Palestine who... Paul said, is the Lord, is the Messiah, is the Christ. One that lived perfectly, died, and was resurrected. And he had come to save all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. This message 
had transformed these people. We had seen this throughout the earlier part of this letter. That they had become new creations. They had become united with Christ. They had been ambassadors of the gospel. Their actions had been transformed. Their love for others. Their sexual ethics. It had transformed all of who they are. How much? That in 1 Corinthians they say they had committed to giving to people they had never seen before. A different culture. A different group. Thousands of miles away in Jerusalem. So this then leads us to the awkwardness. They had committed to this a year earlier, but some things had happened in the church. There had been these super apostles. Paul uses super apostle in a sarcastic way that had come and given a false message to them and had downplayed Paul and his, also his fellow gospel preachers. And this had caused confusion in the church. And now they have kind of lagged on the giving. Some might worry they had reneged on their promise. And now Paul, who had told a poorer church in northern Greece that this richer church had committed, and they had committed and give the offering to Jerusalem, now the offering is ready to be sent to Jerusalem, but Corinth hasn't given. So as we saw earlier, Paul is going to send three individuals that he trusted with much integrity to collect this offering. You can see there's a little bit of this pressure to give, the humiliation or, you know, the desire that the gift needs to be given. All this pressure kind of builds in this chapter in the first six verses. But Paul does this crazy thing at the end of these first six verses. He says, I want you to give willingly, not out of exaction or being forced to give. It would kind of be like this. What if I told my girls, or my girls told me, they said, you know, we're going to clean our rooms. We are going to make sure we clean up the mess in the house, especially because the grandparents are coming. And we want to make sure the house is clean. Well, the grandparents, it's come, the day is coming tomorrow that the grandparents are coming. And the house is not clean. So Aaron and I are going on a date. And we turn to our girls and say, I think you said the house was going to be clean. So we're going to leave to go on our date. And when we come back, we would think the house would be clean. And then we add a caveat to it. We want you to do it not because you're forced, but willingly. How many of you think after we come back from our date that we've heard the message there was no fighting about cleaning the house? Do you think that really would be what we get back to? Absolutely, thank you. That's right, that's how our house rolls. That's a lot to ask. This is what makes this passage intriguing. We see all this pressure of giving and that it's time for the offering to be given to this church in Jerusalem. 
But Paul also mixes it with this. It's superfluous, meaning it's unnecessary for me to even remind you of this. He says, I know of your readiness. I am confident in you. How can Paul, at one sense, the pressure of them giving, also have confidence and feel like it's unnecessary even to say it when the offering has not been given? And also trusting that they would give willingly. He knows this because he knows the work that God has done in their hearts. That they've been transformed. They have been changed by the gospel. And living in that reality would cause these people to give. Not just because they have to, but willingly. In the same way, Aaron and I are confident that because our girls know that we have provided for them, we pay the mortgage, we clothe them, we feed them, we give them car insurance. It's expensive, I want you to know, once you have someone driving, it's expensive. That they would respond of cleaning the house, this chore, out of cheerfulness in what has been given to them. In the same way, it's superfluous. It is unnecessary for me to talk about giving generously at Easter. There's no need for me to tell you that you should sacrifice for those that are poor. That you should give your time and your money to those in need. That when you make more money, when your tax return comes back, you would give it to those in need. Not out of exaction, but willingly. Right? This is what you expected coming to church on Easter. They drag you here once a year and this is what you get? The guilt? The awkwardness of giving sermon on Easter? I do wonder, do we truly get the message of Easter? Does it actually live and breathe in our lives, resurrection life? That we would live radically generous, not out of compulsion, but cheerfully. It's a good check for us. It's a good check. Is Easter just something that rolls out once a year? Or do we actually live the resurrection life in the way that we give radically, generously, not awkwardly, not out of exaction, but out of cheerfulness? Paul, then what he does, he starts to argue what it comes from. 
It's kind of a doxology, a praise to God, and answering some of also the objections they might have. What are the motivations for giving? The first thing he does, one of the two motivations for giving, he gives in verse 6. He uses a farming analogy. Again, this would have been familiar to a civilization at that time that was predominantly agrarian. It says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So all things being equal, if you sow more seeds, it will cause a more bountiful harvest. And Paul's saying this is the motivation for giving generously. If you give generously, you will reap generously the rewards for giving much. Paul is not saying you're going to get much more stuff from God in the sense of money. He lays out it's the satisfaction of God's work in the world, of his righteousness, of you doing good deeds through him. I am perplexed how this passage has been hijacked in the church, especially recently. That some people think it's saying, if I give generously, money, time, whatever it might be, that I'm going to get more money back. You have missed the whole point of this passage. In fact, you've missed the point of 2 Corinthians, which talks about suffering and how the Christian life does not mean you simply are living lavishly, but that you will suffer. So in the passage, it doesn't say that. In the book, it doesn't say that. In the gospel, it does not say that. We follow Jesus who gave generously, and what was his return? His very death and crucifixion. The idea that if we give more, we'll get more money back. The idea of name it and claim it. The idea of just live faithfully and you'll have lots of money cannot be taken from this passage cannot be taken from the book of 2 Corinthians and cannot be taken from the message of the gospel. That said, there is a great harvest that comes. A blessing that is far above and beyond any earthly gift you can be given. Well, Paul goes on to answer maybe some of the objections that the Corinthians might have after hearing this motivation that out of giving, it will reap something bountiful. He says in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul is starting to anticipate some of the objections or some of the thinking that people might have. How much should I give? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 50%? Well, he checks that right away, that you should give what is in your heart. 
Again, not out of this exaction, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but give cheerfully. Again, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to preserve the very heart of the message of the gospel and of grace in this message of giving. That he preserves the doctrine of grace that we do things voluntarily, generously, out of a transformed life, out of a new creation. He's saying the first way of thinking of giving is this. I'm going to give to God what is mine. Paul is saying this radical generosity kind of giving is saying this. I'm giving to God what exactly is all of his. Sometimes when I'm riding in the car with my daughters and we have had to go to church things or I've dragged them to different stuff, I just say, let's just go get ice cream. Right? And usually it's a day, it's busy, so I haven't worked out, so I buy them all ice cream, and I don't have ice cream myself. So here they are all, we're outside or in the car, they're all having their licks of the ice cream or their spoon, and I say, can I have a little bit of your ice cream? What do you think the response is? I'm not going to name names of responses of who does what of my girls. But you can see some of the what? Dad, no way I'm not giving you the ice cream. I like to say, my ice cream. I bought it. I went out of the way to go get it. I do have one daughter, though, that gets the gospel. I won't name her name. <laughs> You're right, Dad. Thank you for going out of your way. Thank you for buying this for me. Of course you can have a bite. And she usually takes her spoon and digs deep into the spoon and gives it to me generously. So Paul, again, he's starting to anticipate some of the objections that come. Okay, if I'm supposed to give cheerfully and generously and out of my heart, am I going to have enough? Verse 8 and 10, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As this is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, anticipating, will I have enough? Paul is saying in quoting scripture, God will give you enough. His grace abounds for you to do good works and to be faithful. Again, you have to realize, 
Paul is writing this when he's in Macedonia, a poor church that has given out of their poverty to the needs in Jerusalem. And these people are wondering, I don't know if God is going to be faithful. Paul saying he is. This is where I think, again, this is awkward. Superfluous. Unnecessary. For me to tell you. That we are celebrating today God's faithfulness. That there was a time in history that God showed us his faithfulness by conquering sin and death and his son rising from the dead. This isn't simply a day where we post pictures on social media in our nice outfits with our kids saying he is risen. No, it's more than that. It's that his faithfulness plays out in our lives. That he is good to us. He has freed us from sin and death. And that we live in this so that we might be able to give generously knowing how much he has given to us and been faithful to us even when we doubt. I'm not saying it's bad to take pictures in your ties with your kids and post it on Facebook. But it's more than that. In 1834, there was accommodations for 3,600 orphans in all of England. Statistics show that there were probably 7,000 plus orphans under the age of eight that were not in orphanages because there wasn't enough room, but were in prison. George Mueller, a German who was converted in his teenage years, came to Great Britain. And he got this call from God that he would start giving to orphanages. He was a pastor at a very small church, a very, very meager salary that he actually did not even take from because they were so impoverished at the church. But he said, whatever I give, I'm, I'm going to give. And he gave 60 to 80% of his income to orphanages. He says this, How the means are to come, I know not. But I know that God is almighty. That the hearts of all are in his hands. And that if he pleases to influence persons, they will send help. George Mueller died in his 90s. All of his valuables, all that he had was $850 worth. He died poor. But through his life, he gave a half a million dollars. And through that, God increased the harvest and righteousness. And people gave him so much money. 
So much money that he started five large orphanages in his life that cared for 10,000 orphans in England. The greatest effect was the way that he inspired others not just to give, but also to start orphanages. In 50 years after this calling from God, 100,000 orphans were cared for England in England alone. Sow bountifully, reap bountifully. Mueller said this, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Here was a cheerful giver. And out of it, God created transformation. Is there something that God might be stirring in you? That you might need to take steps to trust in his provision. That maybe when you earn more, that you would give that away. That you might say, I'm going to think about giving five more, five percent more to this or that. I'm going to see what God will do. God is able to give and work abundantly in our lives. What we have from him is amazing. Sometimes at Good Friday and Easter, we fail to realize that God gave his son, not out of an obligation or exaction, but he gave his son to us cheerfully and out of love. And generously. Paul's second motivation that he gives at the latter part of this passage is this. That your giving will help concretely to the church in Jerusalem. A church that's been persecuted. A church that is going through famine. That your gift will help this church. It will fulfill the needs of the saints. But Paul doesn't just see that as a motivation. He sees something more taking place. You have to realize it's not the best relationship between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. There were racial and cultural divisions. Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, was having issues about the gospel going out to the Gentiles and the message being preached. Thankfully, that had been resolved and missionaries had been sent out and the gospel was going forth in the Roman Empire among Gentiles. Paul saw these divisions starting to go away in unity in the church. And he saw how this gift given by the Gentiles to the church in Jerusalem that had gone and sent people to plant churches, now he saw how it was coming back to them and how through God's providence he was working to unify the church worldwide and then these churches are planted giving back to the church that sent them. And this just welled up in him a thanksgiving to God. 
And that the church in Jerusalem would then see that the gift that was given by the Gentiles was because of their confession of the gospel. The surpassing grace that had happened in their life. That this church in Corinth, who had never seen the church in Jerusalem, that was a different culture, who would probably never be able to see what would happen from that gift, would provide for the church in Jerusalem. Why would they do this? Because they knew what had come to them through the gospel. That God had come to them from heaven to earth. He had come and provided for us sinners that were divided from him. That he would give up his riches of heaven and take on poverty himself. Not out of obligation, not out of exaction, but of cheerfulness. And that was starting to work in their hearts that they would then give to a church they did not know from a different culture, from a place far, far away. Because they knew the gospel had worked in their life. And you see, this started a worldwide movement. How did a little sect, again following a carpenter from Palestine, would become a worldwide religion that would take over the Roman Empire? One non-Christian who wrote 40 to 50 years after this letter to his friend, Diagnetus said this, trying to explain these weird Christians. I can't say I mind this quote myself. Tim Keller mind it. I can't believe he found this. this is amazing, this letter. But here is what this person says. There is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing to their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. This is a non-Christian trying to explain the church. Maybe you're just visiting us this morning. Maybe you come to church just this one time for Easter. I want to encourage you in something this morning. Be a part of a church. And I'll tell you, I'll brag on this church. These people live in this way in this church. My family are benefactors of a church that loves lavishly, that gives generously, that shows hospitality, that gives counsel, that comes alongside others. Don't let Easter just be this thing you show up to 
once a year? See that it is a life lived in resurrection power. It doesn't have to be us. Find some church. And I want to tell you something else. You know those worries about money? Those worries about your 401k, your worries about inflation, your worries about your job, your worries about democracy maybe falling and what's going to happen to America, the worries about the stock market going down, whatever it might be, you can be free from that. You can be free. And you can know all things can come from God. And maybe you can wake up in the morning and finally not worry about your paycheck and your money. That you actually can say, glory be to him. Do you know how many of us in the most prosperous time, in the most prosperous land in history, still worry about money? And God is saying, you can be free. Paul ends this in a doxology, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The Greek word that we've translated inexpressible here in the ESV, it's translated different ways and different versions. Indescribable, undefinable. The reason we translate it in that way is because that Greek word is not used anywhere else or found anywhere else in classical Greek or Koine Greek. It's a word that we think Paul just made up. <laughs> the idea, it's a word that you can't even define the gift. It's so inexpressible. It's so incomprehensible. What is the gift that he's talking about? I don't think it's simply the gift that's going to go to the church in Jerusalem. No, I think he's talking about the gift of the gospel. The gift of Christ's death and resurrection. This is the inexpressible gift of God. One of the most awkward people I've seen on TV is this guy named Sheldon in The Big Bang Theory. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. He's, it's a sitcom and he's a physicist at Caltech, really, really smart, socially awkward, not emotional, a Spock character if you're a Star Trek person. And the humor of the show is that he's juxtaposed, he's put alongside Penny, the neighbor across the way who's from Nebraska, an aspiring actress, not a physicist at Caltech. And the awkwardness is shown when one Christmas, Penny tells Sheldon that she's got him a gift for Christmas. 
Sheldon hates this social convention of gifts. Because now he's wondering, well, I've now got to find something of equal value to give you for Christmas. Because that's the way it works. But he doesn't know how much of value the gift is. So he goes to bed and bath and gets all these gift baskets of different values. And his plan is he's going to open the gift, find out how much it is, then give a gift basket that is of equal value. Well, Christmas arrives. He opens the gift from Penny. And it's a napkin from the Cheesecake Factory where she works. But then he sees that it's signed by Leonard Nimoy, Spock himself. And Penny tells him even the greater news, he's wiped his mouth on it. And you see this look that comes upon him. This is priceless. This is an inexpressible gift. And he runs to his room where all the gift baskets are. And he collects them all. <laughs> and he brings them out to her. And then he does something that he never does. He goes up to her and he hugs her. We have been given an inexpressible gift. Jesus Christ himself in his death and resurrection. Instead of running around finding the value of that, we should be running to him with everything that we have. Radical generosity, cheerful giving, that is what we celebrate because he has given us the inexpressible gift. Church, we live in that power. We live in that gift that has been given. Let us take it in. Let us live in it. And from that, we will have the power to give radically, to give cheerfully.